Hi, I'm Siggy, born and raised in St. Catharines, Ontario, and now living in the nation's capital of Ottawa. And I'm Jazzy, born in Manila, Philippines, raised in Toronto, Canada, and schooled all over southwestern Ontario. You're listening to the Holo Holo Podcast, a delicious mix of pop culture and the Filipino-Canadian life. Before we start our podcast, we'd like to acknowledge the lands we're podcasting on. I'm podcasting from the traditional lands of the Huron-Wendat, the Seneca, and most recently, the Mississaugas of the Credit River. And I'm podcasting from traditional, unceded territory of the Algonquin and Anishinaabeg people. On the Hala Hala podcast, we have devoted the month of May to sex and politics. But before we get into our election results, contemplations, meditations, and Philippine politics and truth-telling... Let's catch up, Sigs. What have you been up to pop culture-wise? I love that we're talking about pop culture first very quickly mm-hmm. because because of you, I had texted you the other night. I was just trying to settle down to sleep, and I said, I guess I'll watch this. And I saw this poster on Netflix of these two guys, and I go, it looks really similar. It looks like the Hello Stranger um, it was. show. Yes, and almost it was very familiar. And then it was called... Heartstopper. Heartstopper. Oh my gosh. So that has been like, it has captured my heart and I can't get enough of this series. So much so that Michael and I have burned through it. Not once, not twice, but five times have we watched this series back to back. I think that's amazing. And I think, can we do a mini taste test at the beginning of this episode? I think we should. It has been purely addictive and easy to binge. And yes, let's do an in-episode quick and dirty taste test. Because you've just watched it too, right? I texted you the next day after watching seven of the eight episodes. (laughs) Right, right. Okay, so taste. What did it taste Taste. like? To me, saltwater taffy. And I choose Mm. that because if you watch episode eight, it's very linked to it. It's a sweet treat. comes out like gum, then taffy, flavorful, leaving a sweet tinge, wanting you to grab another piece of it, usually found Mm. in a beach town. Mm. The characters are endearing and genuine. You want to figure them out, their past, support them, root for them. Perhaps throw a ball to Nick Nelson, one of the lead characters, because he looks like a (laughs) Labrador puppy. He does. uh, To see if he'll catch it. You know, these characters, they're meant for their roles. That's my first hit. What about you? What did it taste like for you? Mm, I totally feel like it tastes like cotton candy. It's sticky. It has that kind of bubblegum flavor, that bubblegum goodness. It's airy. It's cottony. And it's just wonderfully sugary. And I loved how it was trying, it wasn't trying to be more than what it was, which is really its tagline, which is boy meets boy, boys become friends and boys fall in love. So for those of our listeners that don't know anything about Heartstopper streaming on Netflix, eight episodes, really quick, less than a half hour, easy to binge, as I said, because it's addictive, but it's coming of age romance, rom-com story in some ways and found it really heartwarming. And I think sometimes... When I think about eating cotton candy, it's just those are days that I'm having a lot of fun and that just brings a lot of warmth to my heart. And just like you, really loved the casting and finding people who are exactly like the characters that were depicted because it's been based on, for our listeners that don't know, on a Tumblr comic book actually that got picked up and published. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, I've fallen in love with not just the two characters, Nick Nelson and Charlie Spring, but all the characters. Oh my goodness. From from Isaac to Charlie. to Tao to Mm. like L to Tara to Darcy. Darcy. Isaac. Even the teachers. Even the teachers. Mrs. Singh. And like, it is truly engaging. It it is an engaging comic. Like, it's wonderful. 
I really like, and I feel like it's so on brand for you and me and the way that we are with our podcast. You're just engaged by genuine people, like interesting characters. Just it really being. is. It really is. Complex, even though that they're depicting 15 and 16-year-olds, but really true to what I think a 15 and 16-year-old is today. Absolutely. You know? And so I just was thoroughly, thoroughly impressed at catching the complexity and the nuance, and yet the innocence at the same time. So I'm just, I've fallen head over heels for this particular series. Okay, so calorie-wise, how's it hit you? Mm, I just can't get enough of it, you know, so it is certainly worth the calories. And I feel that it doesn't add whatsoever to my pop culture waistline. <laughs> like, I can pick it up at the break, like I can watch a bit of it during lunch, lunchtime. I can watch it during dinner. I can watch it while I'm waiting for Michael, like to get out of work, whatever the case may be. Easy to digest, 20 to 25 minutes, a total viewing time of two hours or two and a half hours if you want to watch it on the weekend and stuff like that. Yeah. Bite size, binging, it's there. Right? <laughs> and many props to Alice Osmond, who wrote the um, graphic novels and was the writer for the series because she right. took all the calories out so many people could enjoy it. Yeah, so good calorie-wise yeah, for you too, I think right? I, I have to agree with you. And like I said earlier, the poster, Hello Stranger, it, it reminded me of it. And I was like, oh, that looks interesting. So I just popped it in. And it struck me, I mean, also, the, uh, this is, takes place in Britain in its own story. But I think the one message, and I'm curious what your thoughts are on this, Kuya, because I know we'll dive mm-hmm. in a little bit quicker. This story, it's a rom-com about boy and boy. To me, I go, I thought it was just a romance story, and it just so happened the leads are two guys. Yeah. I, I think yeah. that's what I, it is. I think it's, uh, we've talked about, and people used to call it alternative stories. They're not alternative stories. They're just stories. And the leads are truly two just males. Stories. That's and right. Yeah. To see this type of produce, that means my kids will see, it just happens that there's two guys. One of them's bisexual. One of them's gay. One of them, you know, there's a transgendered teen who's lovely, who has a straight friend and they have a romance. Like it just so happens that th- this is it. You're not taking any elements out. There's nothing alternative about it. No. Yeah. And because it is a story that I think, you know, in a lot of ways is universal, as I think you're getting at, Mm -hmm. it hits all the right notes. And it's so interesting because I know last season we were looking at, and I still look at boy love series from East Asia and Asia. Mm -hmm. So it's great to see something like this. I would consider this the boy love story equivalents for North American Western audiences. And I'm glad to see this. And I hope we get to see more of it, actually. So on the pop culture buffet, at least for me, Mm. it very much reminded me a lot of Queer as Folk coming of age, Mm. but without all the complications, right? Like I felt like when I'd watch Queer as Folk, although that was very fun to watch in its time period in the 90s, which by the way, it's coming back. Oh, is Um, it? But it was, yeah, they rebooting it actually, but with new characters, but I don't think it's in... Pittsburgh, it's in some other town or whatever the case may be. Maybe it is still in Pittsburgh, I can't remember. But in any case, it felt like Queer as Folk light, mm-hmm. but without all the complications and the drama. If there was any type of homophobia or bullying, it wasn't like outright violent, violent bullying. Mm-hmm. Or if there was any kind of, you know, sadness, it wasn't full on depression and mental health issues. You know, it was just nice and light that way. And that's, that's what I liked about this series and also what it reminded me on the pop culture buffet. So for appreciation, I thought we both can't say enough about the cast. It's amazing. Each character had their own story which could be further plots and it will be i'm Mm. gathering if they pick up i think they're going to pick up another season with isaac and tau you mentioned something about the authenticity about teens 
in the behind the scenes stuff that's on Netflix, yeah. there was consultants that was from the charity of Stonewall. They were right. on hand to tell the cast about insights of being LGBTQ plus in a teen atmosphere. So they had that right. type of coaching, not coaching, but sharing of advice and to keep it authentic. And folks, if you haven't watched the show, like surprise, Olivia Coleman is in it. I know. And she was kept, it was she kept, was a pleasant surprise. She was kept wasn't under she? wraps on purpose. And yes, wasn't in any yes, of the promo material. Afterwards. And if you watch the behind the scenes bloopers, she was so wrapped up in tears and Kit Connors performance, Nick's performance that she cried. And she yes, forgot right. and she forgot her line. And She's she like, I'm, so, her I'm so sorry. Yeah, I'm wrapped right. up with your face. And it was so endearing. And Charlie, Joe Locke is so like, to me, he's like the hybrid Seth Cohen in yes, Britain. And he was so like, he's likable and he's so kind. And I'll break up with Nick because I don't want him to have to deal with the crap that I have to deal with. Like, you don't see that type of genuine care. Like, and, it's yeah, wonderful. So the character of Nick, who is, can be seen as a rugby lad, right. as I think the way that they've described it, is supposed to be quite, you know, have a bit of macho bravado, but happens to be really sensitive and kind and doesn't subscribe to the toxic masculinity that seems to be coming yes. out of these locker rooms, right? Right. And Charlie Spring, on the other hand, sounds like he was bullied the year previously and was inadvertently outed Mm -hmm. or his story got out more than he could actually protect his story at the time and then was subject to a lot of bullying. What's really beautiful about his character is that he just seems so vulnerable and you can see the attraction that Nick has. And it was just so interesting, like just before coming on to tape today, we had seen, Michael and I had seen another episode, surprise, surprise, of Heartstopper. Which one? Towards the end. Episode eight, the last one, right? Well, I, and so, how, but how can you not, like the two kids, like I'm a straight 45 year old man, but when the two of them look at each other and go, hi, hi, you're like, hi. there's so much <laughs> chemistry and you cannot help but smile. Like this is a great, like a series. Yeah, it's a great series. Fantastic casting. Like, I can't get enough of it. And I've read the graphic novels, too. The first I, read two them, I read them of the all. Gra- I read them all. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. You're <laughs> amazing. Yeah. And it's practically, like, I feel like I'm watching a storyboard come to life. That's you know? exactly and it. So, the beauty. You know, yeah. Yeah, it's so beautiful. I just enjoy the fact that Charlie is so authentically vulnerable, while Nick is just so incredibly kind and giving, mm-hmm. and that they are just so meant to be for each other. And so you can't help but want to really root them on, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's certainly what I appreciate. I think the other thing I appreciate is, is that I and I've alluded to this, there was no major major tragedy or no major major violence or major major mental health, right? It oh. was like the regular struggles that most other teens go through. Yes, but you haven't read book 4. So, I think it'll <laughs> be coming, but the way that it's handled and I don't want to spoil yes. people because if you say sample it again, like book 4, it's interesting where you're just Well, and I would you, I I would expect that anyway, yeah, right? It was. But I would expect that anyway because simply because as the relationship deepens, other things are going to emerge because relationships challenge people Absolutely. and then sometimes people's mental health might come arise or whatever the case may be. And I did see Alice Osmond say that, mm-hmm. that she was going to be addressing that hopefully in future seasons if it gets greenlit. And I think it is. I think it will get. I for, hope so. I hope for, so. Yeah. Yeah. So people out there binge it more than twice as far as I'm concerned. And if you don't binge it, aside from sample it again, 
go on to YouTube and Toby Donovan, who plays Isaac, has a vlog. Right. And he's released three episodes and he does behind oh the scenes. Like Netflix right. has had them tune in. Oh, I'm behind the scenes and you see him get the part and it shows some fantastic behind the scenes. And the music, Baby Queen, Colors of You, the video is with the whole cast and it's going to be released mm. soon. So if you want to sample it again, you can and you can do it on so many types of platforms and go through other stuff like Kui yeah. said. I would totally sample it again. But before I tell you more about why I would sample it again, I did also want to mention too, the other reason why I appreciate this particular series is how quickly they resolve major plot points instead of holding out for an entire season to see True. if it's going to happen, right? Like, you know, when we watched Hello, Stranger, it oh was my like, God. Kuya, they didn't kiss. And I'm uh, like, I know, we're going to see it in the movie. Uh, and it's like, love that series. But at the end of the day, it was just kind of like, are they going to kiss? Are they going to kiss? When are they going to kiss? Here, it was like, oh, they kissed really quickly. And then it was like, okay, on to the next thing. So I just totally appreciated that. In terms of like sampling this again, oh my gosh, summer watching and beyond most definitely. And I know that I've just told you guys, you know, that we've had our fifth. It'll be like six, seven, eight, nine, tenth viewings, I'm sure. Michael, like after we finished watching episode eight tonight, he's like, oh, it's over. And I'm like, yeah, but the best part is we can start again. And he was like, yay, we can start again, right? But here's the thing. I know your partner, Michael, and he is puppy-like, too, with the ginger. He totally is. And then when I think about it, my wife has the freckles and light hair. And like this very similar to Michael. I'm like, oh, I guess I do like a... I do not a dog, Emily. I love you. You're very kind (laughs) and like a puppy with puppy dog brown eyes that I love. But I'm like, oh, I can totally see why the Nick Nelson character is very likable, very attractive. He's very likable. I think what's fascinating, though, was Michael and I were also kind of looking at the fashion. And it was just kind of like, oh, Oh, look, everyone has a regular white, you know, school uniform T-shirt. But they had then put darts in the back of his shirt to kind of make him look more muscly and more athletic. Not that he wasn't, but just to kind of emphasize it. It was just, it was fascinating. And then there's a whole bunch of Easter eggs throughout this entire series, right? Right. So from like the crests of the Truman boys school bath. Yeah, and how they change seasons and stuff like that. So now we're kind of watching for the Easter eggs. So it's been kind of fun to watch. And then Michael and I have also been kind of listening to the playlist. So that's been fun. But I will tell you, Six, mm-hmm. when I said to Michael, we should try watching this. And he said, what's it about? And I said to him, oh, it's about like high schoolers falling in love. Yeah. It's a boy meets boy series. He was like, I don't know that I'm into this. I, and I'm like, give it a try. Give I it a wouldn't try. think I heard so really either. And I, the only reason why I thought of you is like, oh, it sort of looks like Hello Stranger, uh, whatever. And I just put it on. Like in the background, then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, this is engaging, especially like Charlie's first little plot line, you know, is dealing with yes. someone who has feelings for him, but is not out and doesn't treat him very nicely. It's right. a surprising twist. It was at the end of the day, like you said, it's a rom-com coming of age story that appeals to universal masses, I think. Yeah. And then just that it's easily accessible. That's and right. I think that that's what I appreciate the most about it. In terms of who to recommend, who would you recommend? You know to? what? Rom-com lovers. And I, mm. I like that it can be related. And a lot of the cast members are still in their teens. Yes, 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 It's yes. not like CW yeah. where everyone is like 30 years old or built or be- way beautiful women that are really developed. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These are yeah. fresh out of teens, like fresh teens. Yes, yeah. the actor that plays Tara Jones. Like, I think she's the oldest one I, and, in like and she, 23 Yeah, barely. Like but like, if you look at the bully Harry, he's like a zygote. 
Like he's yes. like sixteen. <laughs> You're like Well, Kit Connor is only eighteen. Yeah, right? and the same and with so Joe, right? Joe Locke yeah, Joe Locke is young. Yeah. But think, yeah. it makes sense. And I think the cast even says that we are actually just still in our teens finishing school. Yeah, so. like they just finished their exams and then went to acting, yeah. right? Like, <laughs> fantastic that way. In terms of who I'd recommend it, very similar, Romantics at Heart. Mm-hmm. And I think young or old, if you're a romantic at heart, I think you're going to love this. And I love the fact that it's appropriate for anyone over the age of 12, mm-hmm. you know? And so I think anyone over the age of 12 can probably watch this too. Mm-hmm. Anyways, I loved it. I'm so glad that you loved it. I feel like you and I are going to be probably quoting things from it throughout. I know that Michael and I quote things. Like our favorite thing to quote right now is when Charlie says, or Nick says, you know, where's your can-do attitude? And Charlie just says She laughed. That, yeah, she laughed. Oh, they're going to be like, it's just banter. It's just banter. It's just banter. It's just banter. Boys, it's just banter. It's just banter. Right? You know it. I know it. It's, it's just, just banter. banter. And it's like, you know, I feel like we're going to be bantering like that. Well, Heartstopper, love it. So folks, from heart-stopping series about coming of age to a, what I would call a heart-stopping election, our focus of today's episode is on the recent Philippine election and its result. And so, Sigs, I wanted to just get your initial reactions, feelings, and thoughts about these results. Tell me what you think. It's really interesting how I process things because... I obviously, I, I don't live in the Philippines. Mm-hmm. My parents are from the Philippines. And I remember her talking. I was at home at Easter. And my mom's like, are you worried about the election? And I looked at her. I'm like, are you? She's like, a little bit. Mm-hmm. And when I was, there was a bit of a worry. Like, is it possible that a legacy can come back? You know, Marcus and our people. And, and I say this as in my mom's tone where they've been through so much. Like, there's a change. People want change. Is that is that going to happen? And it's mm-hmm. funny, Kuya, because someone just, we were, I was talking about it today with a coworker, and I misquoted myself because my head traveled back to 1986. And clearly, mm-hmm. I don't know math because that was 35 years ago because I was 10. <laughs> but I said 25, and I'm like, oh, wait a minute. I made myself 35. In 1986, at 10 years old, I knew that there was uprising. There was change coming in the Philippines. Right. Right, with the people power. My cousin was wearing yes. a pin with a hand on it in the shape of an L for Laban. And I yeah. remember that being so clear in my mind and my parents saying there's going to be change that's needed. And I remember my parents introducing the word dictatorship and how it yes. wasn't good. And, you know, coming to Canada was for that. And my mom's like, I'm worried, Siggy, you know, they're going through a lot and they need this change, especially with pandemic, the economy, how things are going, war. There needs to be good leadership in the Philippines. Right. My initial head. And then from seeing the results where, and it's so funny because I just see the initials BBM on mm. social media and I keep on thinking Blackberry Messenger. No, that's, <laughs> you know, it's Bong Bong Marcos. And automatically, because we're removed and I'm from the diaspora, I'm from born in Canada and I know what the history has been taught outside of the Philippines. I'm in shock. And with our podcast and with us talking about topics like Maria Reza's Rappler and A Thousand Cuts, it's so interesting to be like, well, what's happening here? Mm. And then seeing our network of Filipinos, people that we've learned and networked from, from our podcast who are part of the diaspora, whether it's Jalen Santiago from Cambion Company, Panay Collection, Dr. Thera Panace, putting things like, what can we do? What can we listen? How do we help sort out our thoughts to our brethren and sisters from the Philippines who are living there, our family? It's just, it's so much. It is a lot, yeah. right? An election results in the Philippines can feel like, like an easy referendum choice, but it, I think it's much more than that. Yeah. 
But before I kind of go into that a little bit more, I just wanted to say in 1986, in January of 1986, you know, my family was in the Philippines. Oh, no way. During those snap elections. And I do remember being there. We were there originally because my grandfather was ill. Mm. And so we went to visit and just in case he would turn for the worse. And then halfway through our visit, unfortunately, he passed away. And then, of course, we stayed for a little bit longer to kind of go through all of the funeral arrangements and stuff like that. But in the midst of all of that, I remember the background of the election and, if you will, how tense it felt and yet there was a hopefulness and yet at the same time it's like, what does this all mean, you know, in terms of the future of the Philippines? And I remember after arriving back in Canada come February and then the People's Power Revolution had just kind of taken off at that point, and then there was obviously the overthrow of the the dictatorship. I suddenly started to realize, wow, like this is really history in the making yeah. in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. So I can't help but think about this particular election and kind of also relate back to 1986, or at least when people power came into being at that point. In terms of this particular election, going in this election, yeah. I've had many conversations with my mom about this election. Oh, yeah? And I've read up on it through CNN Philippines, Rappler, and there's been much cr- controversy over the reliability of the polling that's occurred. Yeah. And, you know, I can tell you that you know, every time I would see my mom, she, we would have more discussions upon, upon the accuracy of the polling. And the polling has certainly indicated at the time that Bongbong Marcos, you know, and th- this is the interesting part. So yeah. Bongbong obviously is his nickname or, and that's now right. like the common yeah. name. His actual name is Ferdinand Marcos Jr. Jr. It's interesting that even just giving the nickname makes us forget a little bit or takes away the activation and the reminder of his association with this. And then just actually just giving the initials just even distills it down and almost sanitizes it. That's just an interesting observation. But the polling had very much revealed that he would win and would lead with a commanding vote, which of course, unfortunately, in the end led to a landslide victory, according to the Commission on Elections. You know, and I, I don't know about you, I know that I was catching some of it in real time. And of course, you know, there's a time difference and having to kind of see, but yeah. it, it became very clear to me that, oh, these polling results were indeed very much right in a lot of ways. And yet at the same time, it just makes you think like, what happened? And I think that that's going to be the continual aftermath question of like, what right. happened? I think kind of coming back, I don't know if you had talking to your mom about this, about like the different platforms, but I know that, you know, looking into this and again, talking to my mom about this and having constant conversations, Bongo Marcus's campaign pretty much was based on a promise of unity as opposed to any other articulated, cohesive platform really addressing the needs of the country. And in contrast, other candidates had very articulate plans, very laid out plans in terms of discussing like economic recovery, pandemic Mm -hmm. response, and like even their positions on geopolitical issues such as the debate in the Philippine Seas, the South China Seas with respect to Philippines and China having territory over there. I don't know if you have any like reactions to that. Can I ask you though, when BBM was thinking about unity, was he thinking about the United, like United of the people of the Philippines or was that based on a different type of thought of what his like perception of what unity was. Do you know what I mean? Like about uniting the Philippines together was a, or was it? Yeah, I certainly think that perhaps it was a double message, mm-hmm. meaning that, yes, he probably said unity and letting people project onto it in terms of people feeling that he was going to unite the entire country. 
But I really certainly think that the unity was mostly because of the political dynasty and backing that <sighs> his ticket, the Marcos Duterte ticket, had. So it wasn't only just Marcos and the Duterte family kind of joining forces, but also the Arroyos, the Estradas, and the Valar families. You know, and these are political dynasties. And to me, it's amazing that the other contenders for the presidency and vice presidency even got the remainder of the votes. Those families alone very much shaped and created this ticket kind of going forward. Uh-huh. So the question that you ask, like, is it unity because of him wanting to unite all of the Philippine people? Perhaps. But I wonder if it's more of a secondary, if not tertiary message. I think he meant unity amongst the political ruling families, really, is what I think he really meant. And even with their, like, I mean, it's translated, but even like the campaign slogan, Together We Shall Rise Again, to me, it just sounds a little bit ominous. Like, you're just like, okay. And then you see the last names. You're like, oh. Yeah, yeah. and the question is, is this together, like, who's together with you and who do you include or exclude? And it just happens to be, like, all of these political families that have brokered together this set of people to run. So Sarah Duterte, you know, yeah. daughter of <sighs> President Rodrigo Duterte's mm-hmm. daughter, you know, and then, of course, Bomba Marcos. Do you get this set going forward representing all of that? And it just makes you think that these family dynasties, these family political dynasties also have a particular financial network, economic network. Right. You have to kind of ask yourself, or at least what I'm asking myself is not only unity, but who is this really benefiting in terms of their unity message? Is it really the people or is it a particular class of people? I tend to kind of think the latter here, that it's a very particular class of individuals, probably more the ruling elite in a lot of ways or the rich elite in a lot of ways. It's hard. Oh God, it's so weird how I have a feeling about this, even though I'm not a citizen of the Philippines and I don't live there. Yeah, but but how can we not? I, I, I right? know. Like, how can I, we not? You know? And even like reading like Robredo and Pangilinan's like, Honest government, better life for all was their campaign platform. And you're just yeah. like, crap. Like, that's, <laughs> they're asking for an honest government, like in right. transparency, which we think should be part of government. I, I just also, because I've, I've lived in Canada all my life, right? And that's, that's what we try, try for. And like, well, it just makes me kind of come back to that idea of where does the Philippines lie in the democracy index. And, you know, it is quite perhaps very privileged of the two of us to be able to have this conversation yeah. and say that we live in a country that very much values voices and have good, honest, ethical governments without any over-patronage and stuff like that. Like, I'm very proud of how our public service, for example, very much is loyal to the government, not necessarily a particular party, That's you know, true. Is, yeah. is what I know, as opposed to the United States, you know, where those patronages are, if you will, paid back through positions and Correct. stuff like that. Yeah. And then, of course, that happens in the Philippines as well. And so when Bomba Marcos was actually predicted to win, before the results became official, it was fascinating that there was like pictures of Bomba Marcos amongst a bunch of billionaires, if you will, already celebrating. And, uh, you know, that could be taken a number of different ways. Right. But some people I know, at least in the Twitter first felt very insulted by that. It's kind of almost arrogant in some way, shape, or form. But I think that that has to do structurally. Like, structurally, this is kind of like how democracy is built in the Philippines, is my observation, at least. 
And I don't know that, you know, you have to question that, or at least I start to question that. Like, is that really truly democracy or is that just kind of this padrino system, this patronage system that's actually getting certain people's voices into the discussion and not everybody's voices into the discussion? I'm just learning a lot, like, in the way we've discussed a lot about bias and systems. And I remember you and I talking about, like, when there's problems in the system, when some, there needs to be, like, systemic change and stuff. I, I gather this would be an example, right, of the, the system being broken. And or only working for a few people or a few sets of people. And I think that that's what's problematic. And it just makes my heart pour out to the people that really need the help of the government and they're not getting it or may not get it. I guess time will tell for this particular government, you know, and I think that that's the challenge that's ahead of him for the next six years to come. But I have to say, Sigs, yeah. like, Bongbo Marcus has a lot in front of him, right? Like, he has to kind of address the low poverty rates, and which means by extension, low poverty is usually related to lack of funding for education. And, you know, will he actually be able to shore up funding for education so that then that starts to ease poverty? Or how is he going to attract foreign investment where it means actually reducing the debt and increasing gross domestic product of the Philippines? And yet at the same time, stabilize currency and reduce corruption. And the reason why reduction of corruption is important Mm -hmm. is I think a lot of foreign investment would look at that. They want to make sure that the money they put in the Philippines, they get back back. out and it's not going to be used for other (laughs) alternate means, you know, kind of like what happened with his father, right? You know, and I think that's part of the reason why his legitimacy is sometimes questioned by people on the other side is the lack of acknowledgement of any of this outstanding ill-gotten wealth. And also his credibility amongst world leaders. And I think to myself, if you want foreign investors investing, then the world leaders need to also believe that you're credible. And if your status within the United States, even though Joe Biden congratulated him, how do you outrun the contempt order that's currently in place in the United States for Bong Bong Marcos? So that's problematic and corruption goes hand in hand with the Padrino system. And yet the Padrino system very much, as you were recognizing, underlies this entire issue. So how do you attract foreign investment? I don't know that you can, right? Like, <laughs> or you're going to have a, a really difficult time. But Sig, my feelings on this, and I'd like to hear your feelings on, on this, is, is, is that I just have feelings of disappointment. And the reason why I have feelings of disappointment is... I certainly believe that the Philippines could be the next South Korea. I don't mean like producing Samsung phones and stuff like that, but I just mean South Korea's economy had transformed from being one of the poorest to one of the richest by capitalizing their natural resources and their people's ingenuity. I think with the right leadership, could the Philippines do that? And then they no longer have to be part of that global South and probably export all this labor around the world just to increase people's standards of living. And that's really where my disappointment really lies. It's related to this kind of lost potential for the next six years to come and not wanting to look forward to becoming, if you will, you know, taking its place in the world. So that's kind of where my disappointment is, that the lost potential that they're going with Bombong Marcos. And I think it is the choice of the people and you have to respect the will of the people, but that's kind of where my feelings lie. I don't know if you, where your feelings lie on all of that, but that's That's what I've been thinking and feeling. I concur with you. I think that's very perceptive about them being the next South Korea. Like, there is such potential, Korea. I think social media is very strong in the Philippines. We we see it. I 
Yeah, I, you know, so I think about this, Sigs. Yeah. Like, English is a language that, that is taught and people matriculate in and you have call centers where people are from the Philippines. That's right. right. You're exactly you know, right. So I th- English is not a... F- not really truly a foreign language. And in fact, people from East Asia sometimes come to, to the Philippines to learn English. The other is, is, is that we are certainly, the Philippines is certainly a tourist destination. It, is. it could actually be the Caribbean of East Asia or Southeast Asia for that matter and have the most luxurious oh. resorts that people would want to go to that could probably counter Dubai if we could ever get our act together. And much stuff. affordable. One word, Palawan. Right? Palawan, Boracay, Shergao. Like, if you think about these places, if you attracted foreign investments, you know, that were done in a sustainable manner, you know, it could actually be like a destination, you know, a, a lush oasis and playground for Southeast Asia. And none of that's being really utilized in some ways. And, but I think it comes from good government. And I hope that that's what Bombo Marcos does. Anyways, I think that that's kind of where my feelings are at. I also find that when I feel disappointed in an election, and I think anyone that feels disappointed in an election, or even if, you know, your government, if your party gets into government and you're happy about that, there's always this kind of post-election academics and pundits end up analyzing what the election results Uh mean. And I know here at home, we have our own upcoming election in the province of Ontario, where I think in some ways there's going to be a referendum on what Ontario's think of Doug Ford and his handling of the pandemic and his handling of the economic recovery. And I just have to say, folks, it's May 16th as we're recording this, and I just watched the leaders' debate amongst the different parties, and I'm just not impressed in any ways. The hope is, is, is that he'll either be voted out or kept out, which is less about what the other parties stand for and more about how he and his parties governed. And I have to say, Sig, yeah. the start of the pandemic, I was actually impressed. With I, that was story, too, right? I was too. I was too. It like, wasn't easy at oh, the he's beginning. He's actually handling this well. Yes. And now it's like, oh gosh, like now it's all about the business. Yes. Yeah. And so a lot of problematic stuff. But it makes me want to pose the same question that I would ask of any election result in Canada, which is what does this election for the Philippines mean for Filipinos and Filipinx, Filipina, Filipinos in the diaspora? When I ask this question, what does this election for the Philippines mean for all of us? What does it, what do you think it means? I just think we need to take a bigger look at the picture. And Mm. I am privileged. I know that we, our vote means something in the country that we live in, in Canada. In there, I just, and I think you said that earlier or whatever, I don't think the voters are dumb in the Philippines. I don't. And I know a lot of people are like, oh, well, you know, some people have privilege, like in the diaspora, that, oh, okay, well, they voted that guy in. Like, that's their fault. Well... I think that's a really simplistic analysis, right? Is it not? You know, because I, I, and I think, I think it's one way of trying to understand this, but I think it's much more complicated than that. And, you know, we can either villainize Bongo Marcos or characterize the voters in the Philippines as not being informed or unaware of the disinformation or that they've been tricked by social media or by politicians. Mm But like what I said, I think that that's actually simplistic in the end. And for me, what I think this election all means is is that I think one way that it's been posed is that journalists have posed this election as being a referendum on how the Philippines really wants to see the past and how to move forward. And I think journalists and academics have really just hypothesized that perhaps the Philippines wants to see the past differently and hence the future differently. So... 
if the past is really viewed as a halcyon period, which really just means looking at Ferdinand Marcus's first term only, where his government was initially seen as orderly and poised to be on the world stage, then there's this belief that maybe perhaps they have to go back to that as a way of being able to move the country forward. But to me, I think the more interesting question to pose is what it means to avoid or ignore or not acknowledge Marco Senior's dictatorship and the extrajudicial killings and the human rights abuses yeah, yeah. that occurred, which are very similar to Duterte's government, uh, if not the oh, same. If not the same. If not, the, not same. the same. It's yeah. so... I'm just thinking of, like, what is it we can do? Like, Yeah, well, uh, I, I certainly think what we needs to be done is, you know, like, I can accept that Bomba Marco system power, mm-hmm. right? Like, the people have obviously spoken. But I think the challenge is to continue to remember the atrocities of the dictatorship. Because not to do that means actually we would be avoiding, ignoring, you know, not acknowledging all of those atrocities that have occurred in the Philippines. And to me, wanting to avoid it is really maybe about a collective shame in acknowledging a really checkered political past, like just not being proud of what has happened in the Philippines and people either going along with it, ignoring it, colluding with it, whatever the case may be. So like a classic contrast is actually Germany, you know, where they readily acknowledge the part they played in World War II. And although they feel much, and I would distinguish this not from shame, which is that they feel a lot of collective guilt. So- Certainly, I think collective guilt and collective shame are about feeling bad. So while the Philippines feels collective shame, perhaps, maybe about the dictatorship and what had gone on there, Germany, in in contrast, feels a lot of collective guilt. And what I believe happens in collective guilt is is, is that, and in this case, Germany has worked hard at taking responsibility for its part. Oh, yeah. What they've done is so, in terms of taking responsibility, is to not forget their past so as to ensure that they don't make the same mistakes at perpetuating genocide, more human rights abuses, and needless war atrocities. You know, like when you talk about, like, I wonder what needs to be done, I think at a national, international level, we have to acknowledge some of these terrible things. You know, in in some ways, like you're kind of seeing that today, like the truth and reconciliation of the Vatican and the Pope, you know, coming to Canada, wanting to kind of acknowledge the atrocities. If you can't, you know, acknowledge the truth, how can you ever reconcile and move forward? And I think people, just like countries, can either avoid or face the truth. And just avoiding the truth makes things worse in the end. And I would say actually facing the truth, and it is difficult to face the truth. Yeah. But ultimately, I think it allows one to move forward and grow. And I think the same thing happens for a country. You know, so that's kind of like my wish for the Philippines. Oh, yeah? Again, I can accept that Bongbo Marcos is in power, maybe there's an opportunity here to actually see the past for what it really was, that it's complicated, you know, and that it was filled with, again, human rights abuses and judicial killings, right? Martial law. Yeah, martial law. You know, my hope is is, is that Bongba Marcos's government faces that truth and is able to steer the Philippines towards a future where it leads, again, in economic growth in East Asia, and that we face the truth about the dictatorship of Marcos Sr. So 
Sigs, that kind of just leads us to the end of today's podcast and and to the fixing of the week. And I just wanted to share with you like recent discussion that I had with my mom as we were kind of debriefing about the elections. You know, my mom and I have had many, again, discussions about this. And she had pointed out that despite how harrowing martial law was in the Philippines, you know, that perhaps it's a blessing in disguise. And it was really touching to hear my mom say that because really what she was alluding to was that, you know, she outlined how martial law really challenged her to move across the world to really yeah. find ways of raising our potential and providing us with opportunities and wealth. And not just wealth in terms of money, right? Or financial wealth, right. but just like wealth in terms of knowledge, in terms of friends, in terms of opportunities. And that she believes that we might not have had collectively gotten this if we had stayed in the Philippines. So that just kind of makes me think that perhaps maybe the fixing in all of this is really finding a blessing in the aftermath, wherever that might be. And so maybe that's more of a wish than a fixing, but that's kind of where I think it'd be nice to leave our podcast on Philippine politics and the election results of 2022 in the Philippines. I think that's a good place to leave it. We love email, and we'd love to hear what you guys think about this episode. Please email us at holoholopopculture at gmail.com. The Holo Holo Podcast, this episode, and many more that we have are available on all podcast platforms. Please rate us and leave a review. Tweet us at us. Our Twitter handle is at holoholopop, and we're on Instagram at holoholopopculture. Finally, we receive editorial feedback from Mary Beth Badian. Our musical theme is by Chelsea Ringen, and we'll see all of you guys again real soon. See you guys soon.